This comes from uh, the book of Revelation, and uh, the church started a series on Revelation a couple weeks ago. So this comes from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God. I tricked you, Fred. There's more. I'll read the second part. <laughs> so there's seven letters. So Fred read the first letter. Uh, I'm going to read the last letter. Uh, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see." Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is the word of the Lord. All right, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll get started. Uh, God, we uh, we thank you for this time, and we pray, God, that you'd speak to us. Um, you know, in particular today, as we think about the church and what the church is uh, meant to be, as you call us to be, um, I pray, God, that you would give us uh, not only soft hearts to receive um, some of the rebuke, uh, but also uh, convicted hearts, uh, hearts that are convicted of your goodness, hearts that are convicted of uh, what it means to be a church, to belong to the church, uh, but also convicted of your promises. And, uh, you know, more and more, uh, I think we see uh, the need for the church to be uh, what you call it to be. And, um, you know, there's so many uh, distortions and deformities uh, of um, what the church is meant to be. But we ask God that you would refine the areas uh, in which we need refining and that we would be a pure church, a pure bride, uh, so that we can fulfill the calling that you give us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, good morning, everybody. Um, so we are going through a series on the book of Revelation. And, you know, this next section, I wasn't really sure how to preach on because there's seven letters, and these seven letters have, you know, seven distinct messages to seven churches. And in the past, what we've done is we've done a series through these seven churches, and uh, we've also done Bible study through these uh, seven churches. 
And recently, at the end of last year, we also had seven weeks of prayer where we prayed through uh, the messages to these seven churches. And uh, because of that, uh, I didn't want to go through all seven letters. Uh, I didn't want to spend a week on each letter. But I do think it's worthwhile to spend at least one sermon or one Sunday on the entirety of the section. And so I had to be a little bit selective. And what I decided to do is uh, I decided we will look at the that two letters, the first letter to Ephesus and the last letter to Laodicea. And I didn't choose these letters for any particular reason, as if to say these are the two most relevant letters, because I actually think every letter is relevant to us. Uh, but basically, I chose these two letters because they're the first and the last. And I think the letter to Ephesus transi transitions nicely from last week's passage and the letter to Laodicea trans transitions nicely to next week's passage. And so uh, let me warn you from the start, there's a lot to pack in. This will probably be one of my longer sermons, which um, I usually preach maybe like 25 minutes. This will probably go 30 minutes, maybe 35 minutes. Uh, but there's a lot in here that uh, I do want to cover. Now, last week, if you remember, we saw that John had a vision of Jesus walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And it's not often that we get the interpretation uh, of the imagery, but Jesus is very explicit in saying that these seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And while Jesus addresses each of the seven churches specifically and directly, uh, what we're supposed to take away from it is the combination of all seven letters basically gives us a picture of what Jesus wants the church to be. Uh, he wants the church uh, to hold firm to the truth of the word of God and resist false teaching. He wants the church to resist compromise and moral compromise, even in the face of social pressure or economic and legal persecution. Uh, he wants the church to have a, a genuine personal relationship with Jesus rather than being a Christian by name only. And so as you read through these letters, you know, they certainly hit on many of the spiritual problems of uh, the modern Western church, which, you know, we are a part of. But if there were a theme that I think binds all these letters together, I would say they all have to do with uh, the theme of maintaining the, the witness of the church. Now, Jesus commands the church to persevere and resist compromise because the church is a lampstand. Last week, we said that in the Jewish temple, lamps, they were placed in front of the Holy of Holies and uh, the Jews understood the light that came from these lamps as representing the presence of uh, God, as shining the presence of God. And so what the priests would do is they would tend to these lamps and they would make sure that these lamps were burning. And the imagery we saw from last week, Jesus is like the priest who is tending to these lamps or who is tending to the church and making sure that it stays lit. And the way that Jesus does that is displayed here in these seven letters to the seven churches. And he does it through words of exhortation, through words of encouragement, through words of rebuke, and through words of discipline. Now, these seven letters, they follow a similar structure. They begin by referring to something about Jesus's identity. And uh, for the most part, these are taken from the vision that we saw in chapter one. So if you remember chapter one, uh, I said it's like uh, the first four notes in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, where you have bum, 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 and then you see kind of like reiterations of that through the rest of the symphony. Uh, so you start to see uh, iterations of that in these seven letters. And uh, parts of that vision are now taken from that, that initial vision and applied to these seven churches. And so since Jesus is uh, the one with eyes like flame of fire, uh, he tells these churches what he knows about them. And he knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the areas in which they have been faithful. He knows the areas in which they have fallen short. And so he encourages them to persevere uh, in the things that they've been faithful in, or 
uh, he gives them some sort of uh, correction or rebuke and tells them uh, to repent for the things that they have fallen short in. And that call then is followed by some sort of promise of some kind. Uh, and then a final statement for one who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, uh, basically pay attention, listen, right? So you're going to see that structure in uh, these two letters that we're going to look at today. Now, this first letter is addressed to uh, the angel of the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a very important city for you know a lot of reasons, namely political and economic. Um, but we also know a little bit about this church and how this church started because uh, we have the book of Acts and Acts 18 to 20 tells us how this church started. Now, if you read those chapters, according to the book of Acts, you had this guy, Apollos, and he first came and he spoke things boldly concerning the things concerning Jesus Christ. And then later what would happen, Paul would pass through Ephesus and uh, ask them, have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? And uh, they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. So Paul baptizes them and lays hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and people start speaking in tongues and prophesying. And it's this really... Uh, powerful um, experience, this powerful moment in the, uh, the life of the people in Ephesus. And many people in Ephesus, they came to believe and they started to confess their evil practices. And people would literally come and they would confess that they had practiced magic and they would burn up all their magic books in response to the preaching of the word of God. So this is a city where God really did some amazing things when he birthed the church and when Paul eventually had to depart from them, he gives the elders some instructions. And he says this, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul knows that after he leaves, what's going to happen? You're going to have these false teachers who start to emerge, not from outside, but from within the church. And he's warning them. He's making sure that uh, you stay uh, the course. You don't allow these people to twist the church and turn away disciples away from Jesus. And so they seem to have taken what Paul said pretty seriously, because in this letter, Jesus commends them for discerning these false teachers and for rejecting them. And these people, they were a group called the Nicolaitans. And you know, they were probably teaching something to the effect of it's, it's okay, it's acceptable to participate in idol worship. Now, Asia Minor was dominated by these pagan temples, and Ephesus was no exception. So in Asia Minor, there was a strong temptation to participate in idol worship because it was part of the social and economic fabric of society. Uh, there were these trade guilds or these trade unions in these pagan cultures. You know, in order to engage in commerce, in order to have a successful business, you had to be a member of these trade guilds. But the problem that it presented for a Christian back in the day is in order to maintain your membership in these trade guilds, which means in order to have, uh, I guess, a quote-unquote successful career, you had to participate in idol worship. And so that creates a dilemma for a Christian who's trying to make a living in a culture where the practices of the culture that are accepted contradict what is morally accepted for a Christian. And so one way to get around that without suffering, uh, without your business suffering, without your livelihood suffering is uh, you alter the teachings of what Jesus says. You alter the teachings of the Bible. So the Nicolaitans, they seem to be going around and saying, you know, it's okay to participate in idol worship. It's not that big of a deal. Now, from our vantage point, uh, maybe we wonder how believers in those days could be tempted to believe in something that is so obviously false. 
but we have to remember that you know uh, preserving the truth of God is uh, is not an intellectual uh, activity, but it's it's spiritual warfare. Why? Because Satan is the master of lies, and he's the one who distorts the truth. And people don't just believe in lies on account of a lack of intellect, but they believe in lies because uh, they've become tempted uh, by the desires of their hearts. And I think that's where uh, lies begin. It begins with the desires of our hearts. That means getting an elite education or being smart enough is not enough to resist lies. You have to guard your heart and you have to guard the desires of your heart. Now, for those who may have been deceived by the teaching, teachings of the Nicolaitans, you know, maybe they had a desire for social acceptance or for economic security or for comfort. And these desires would tempt them to say, well, you know, what if I just go through the motions in these pagan temples? And what if I don't uh, do it with sincerity? Um, you know, nobody really gets hurt if I participate in idol worship. So what's the harm, really? Maybe uh, this will lead to forming some relationships where I can share the gospel with uh, some of these pagans. And eventually gets to the point where they might say, did God really say we can't do this? Right? Did God really say we can't worship in these pagan temples? And that is the same exact question that the serpent asks in the Garden of Eden. And once you get there, then you could probably justify anything as long as you get what your heart desires. And so some churches, they compromised and they bought into some of these false teachers, which uh, you see in the other letters. Uh, but the church in Ephesus, they resisted these false teachers. And that's why Jesus is commending them. They held firmly to the truth. And in order for a church to be a faithful witness in the world, it needs to be rooted in the truth of God's word. Now, we're going to see this a little bit later in the book of Revelation, but Satan is ultimately a counterfeiter. He is not like God, and therefore he doesn't have the ability to create things like God can. The best thing that he can do is counterfeit what God has already created. And how do you spot a counterfeit? Well, people who do it for a living, they say, you don't study all possible variations of how someone can counterfeit something, but rather you study the actual thing, the original, so well that you can identify the subtle deviations in the counterfeits. And the only way to spot counterfeit truths, which are ultimately lies that come from Satan, is to know what God says and to know it really, really well. Now, even though they were faithful in resisting false teachers, Jesus has something against his church. And he says this, they have abandoned the love they had at first. I think the love that they had at first is referring to their love for the gospel message, uh, referring to their love of the works related to the gospel message and sharing the gospel. Uh, the church in Ephesus, you see, was is filled with second generation believers. And I think the good thing about being a, a second generation Christian is you grow up in the church and because you grow up in the church, you have an opportunity to be taught well and rooted in the word of God. But first generation believers, uh, they tend to have a greater passion for the gospel message and it's expressed by a zeal to share it with others. And while it's important for the church to hold on to the truth of God's word, it's also not enough uh, in order to be a faithful witness. A church has to have a sincere love for the gospel message or you know, falls the danger of becoming a cold-hearted church that cares more about being right than about being light. And so when Jesus tells them to repent and do the works they did at first, he's talking about the work of testifying about Jesus in the world. And this ultimately requires a dependence on the Holy Spirit. The imagery of this lampstand, it's, it's found in Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 4. And I, I mentioned this last week, but the word that accompanies this vision is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. 
And in that vision, you have these two uh, olive trees that are on each side of the lampstand. And what they're doing is they're pouring out oil. And oil, of course, was uh, used to keep the lampstands lit. And so along with the corresponding word in Zechariah 4, uh, I think it's saying that the temple stays lit when the Spirit of God is there, when the Spirit of God is fueling it. And so unless they repent, Jesus says he will take away their lampstand. If you have a lamp that no longer works, then it becomes irrelevant and you remove it. When a church fails to uh, depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to stay lit, when a church fails to be a witness, um, when a church becomes, uh, I guess, some kind of social club, some insular social club, uh, when a church um, loses its light, Jesus has a, a word of judgment. He says, I will take away your lampstand, essentially because you become irrelevant. You no longer function as you are meant to function. You are no longer shining light in a dark world. And that's uh, what he says to Ephesus. Now, quickly, uh, let's move on to the second letter. Uh, or the last letter. In the letter to Laodicea, Jesus gives a pretty harsh rebuke. And this church is worse than the church in Ephesus because there is no positive affirmation here. And just like Ephesus, uh, the church in Laodicea, they were ineffective in their witness. Jesus says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. And then he gives them this threat. And he says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And what is Jesus saying to them? Uh, you know, it helps a little bit to get the context of the city uh, because then their pride and apathy will make a little bit more sense to us. You know, in verse 17, uh, we learn that the Christians in Laodicea, they were rich and prosperous. And the city itself was a very prosperous city. Laodicea, they were known for three things. They were known for their their financial institutions, they were known for their textile industry, and they were known for their technology in healthcare. Now, their financial institutions, they were so strong that when they experienced a, a really destructive earthquake in 64 AD, they actually didn't need any support or help from any other city, including Rome. Uh, they were wealthy enough where they were able to rebuild their city on their own. Uh, not only that, but in their textile industry, they were the center of the wool industry. And they produced uh, this kind of black wool that gave them a sense of pride. And then finally, they were known for their advancement in healthcare, uh, especially in the area of ophthalmology. And they had established a school of medicine and they developed this compound that would cure various eye diseases. And so you have a city that is very prosperous, very successful, and had a lot to be proud of. And yet, Jesus is not pleased with the church in Laodicea. Why? They were lukewarm. Now, a lot of people have uh, interpreted that to mean lukewarm as like a lukewarm passion and think this congregation uh, lacked passion. And it's not wrong to say that, but when Jesus is saying that they were lukewarm, I think he's actually talking about the ineffectiveness of their witness. So if you read the passage, Jesus is not saying he wants them to be hot only, uh, but he's also saying he wants them to be cold. The problem is they're not either hot and they're not cold, but they're just kind of in between, they're lukewarm. And uh, he also doesn't say, I know your heart or your emotions, but he says, I know your works and your works are neither hot nor cold. Now, what is he talking about? Well, you know, in the geography of Laodicea, Laodicea was uh, located between these two regions, Heropolis and Colossae. And Heropolis was known for their hot water, uh, which, um, and which served as having this medicinal effect. 
And Colossae was known for that really cold, cool, refreshing, refreshing life-giving water. And what Laodicea would do is they would pipe in hot water from Heropolis and they would pipe in cold water from Colossae. And by the time that the water got to Laodicea, the water would become lukewarm. And so they only had access to this tepid, lukewarm water. Uh, and because of that, you know, the water lacked the healing effect that hot water has, and it lacked the refreshing effect that cold water has. And it was disgusting to the people of Laodicea. Now, think about it. When you're sick or when you have a cold, you don't want lukewarm tea. You want really hot, soothing tea. When your body aches, you don't go to a spa to sit in lukewarm water, right? You want to relax in hot water so that it soothes your muscles. And conversely, when you're really hot and when you're really thirsty, maybe after, um, I don't know, exercising in a day in the sun, the last thing you want to do is drink lukewarm water. You want this cool, refreshing water that, um, you know, cools your body down and makes you feel refreshed. Now, with that context in mind, when Jesus says their witness is lukewarm, he's saying this, that the witness of the church in Laodicea, it lacks the healing effect of this hot water, and it lacks the refreshing, life-giving effect of cold water. They are neither hot nor cold, right? They're ineffective. They're useless, uh, similar to uh, the church in Ephesus that, I guess, lost its witness. They were like salt that lost its saltiness, and... So Jesus gives him a threat and he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so why were they so lukewarm? Well, if you were to spiritually diagnose this church, you would conclude that they were a self-sufficient people. Uh, Jesus says in verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. In their wealth, in their success, they have become self-sufficient. And in their self-sufficiency, they have grown spiritually proud and have said, I need nothing. Now, you remember when we looked at the Beatitudes, um, I don't know, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the ones who are needy, who need Jesus. Do you know what he says to those who say, I need nothing? Well, Jesus says to them, to the Laodiceans, he says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You have a certain perception of your reality, but that reality does not correspond to your actual spiritual reality. And as a result, right, you half-hearted, self-reliant, ineffective Christians are like lukewarm water to me. Ouch, right? Ouch. Harsh things to say. But despite uh, how th bad things are spiritually for Laodicea, it's not hopeless, even for them. And Jesus counsels them to do three things. And first he says, to buy from me gold refined by fire. And fire would be used to burn away all the impurities of precious metal. So Jesus is counseling them to seek purity, which oftentimes will come by way of trial. And that kind of gold is going to be more precious than your financial wealth. Second, he says, buy from me white garments. And the kind of garment... Uh, this kind of garment is much more effective than the black wool that you make. Why? Because this garment can cover your shame. And third, he counsels them, he says, buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. That kind of medicine is much better than the one that you produce in your um, medical school. 
because this gives you spiritual sight. In other words, what Jesus is saying, everything that you actually need, I have to give to you and come to me to receive it. And you haven't come to me to receive it because you're so self-sufficient and you lack spiritual awareness. And so hear my discipline, repent and come to me so that you might receive what you really need. And, you know, after a letter like this, uh, to which I am sure we could probably see a lot of parallels um, with ourselves, uh, especially being in New York. And, you know, these two cities in particular uh, can sound very New York-y. Uh, it would be easy to maybe lose hope and say, you know, as a church, oh, we are utter failures. But that's not what Jesus ultimately wants. You see, he doesn't want us to lose hope. He doesn't want us to lose hope in, in the church. He doesn't want us to fall into despair. He doesn't want us to uh, forfeit uh, in, in the spiritual battle. And, you know, especially because politics is, has entered into uh, the church, at least on a national scale, um, you know, it would be very easy to say, ah, right, there's no hope for the church. But you have to understand that's not what Jesus wants. Um, he wants the church to be a repentant church and to return to him and seek his purity and seek his garments uh, to seek uh, the spiritual sight that ultimately he provides. In other words, he wants us to overcome, right? Every letter ends with the one who overcomes. And how do we overcome? We overcome through repentance and turning towards him. But you also see as harsh as this letter might be, he still offers um, a, the hand of fellowship. And that gives great hope. You know, in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And this is an, an evangelistic verse in the sense that Jesus is not saying this to unbelievers. He's saying this to the church. He's saying this to believers. He's not saying, let's get married, right? But he's saying this, in view of being married, won't you share in deep fellowship with me? He is knocking at the door because he wants to eat with you and you with him. Now, if you're married, uh, the thing that defines your relationship is what? A legal declaration of marriage. You have a marriage certificate. And even though, um, you know, in our culture, people seem to downplay and say it's just a piece of paper. That's ultimately what defines two people being married, right? That piece of paper, that legal declaration. But even though you might be legally married, right? Marriages can go stale when you don't spend enough time together, when you don't share intimacy together. It's easy to work all the time or just to be on your phones all the time and never share real intimacy with your spouse. Uh, there was an article I saw many, many years ago, and it was drawn from research uh, from an Oxford University study, and it found that, you know, couples who talk more through digital mediums are probably less likely to be satisfied with their relationship. Why? Well, married couples are only communicating via email or text, there's a loss of intimacy. Um, it becomes more about organizing your schedules or, I don't know, picking up the kids rather than what you typically would do over like a date, right? Over a meal, which is to enjoy one another's company, enjoy one another's presence. You know, sometimes maybe that's how we practice our relationship with Jesus in that we fit Jesus in whenever it's convenient. We worship as long as it doesn't affect our plans. We serve as long as it doesn't require too much sacrifice. We pray as long as we don't have something more enticing to do. And even when we do pray, maybe our prayers are more like sending a text message to a person rather than 
delighting in him and enjoying a meal with a person. And if so, then it's very likely that you don't have intimacy with Jesus. You may have union with him by virtue of a, a legal declaration called justification by faith, but you don't have communion with him. And to bring it back to the church as being a witness, without communion with Jesus, what kind of witness can you possibly be? Uh, that's a little bit like a wife who never talks to her husband, uh, saying to another person, you should really meet my husband. You should talk to him, right? He's a great conversationalist. He's amazing. That's a little bit disingenuous because if he is so amazing, why aren't you spending time with him? Well, in Revelation, we are the bride of Christ. Jesus is our husband, so to speak. He's our bridegroom. And if we are not spending time with him, right, he is the one who knocks at the door with the intention of dining with us. And if we are not spending time with him, it is going to affect our witness and our, our witness will ultimately be disingenuous and without power. And to be very practical, you know, the way we spend time with him, I think, is to spend time with him in worship and to spend time with him in prayer and to spend time with him in his word. And <clears throat> I know, um, trust me, uh, everybody, I know it's hard to do that. And especially in a pandemic, especially if you have kids, um, I, I know how difficult it is to make time to do that. Um, but if you haven't done that in a while, right, a lot of things are hard, right? It's probably hard to date too, date your spouse if you're married. Um, it's probably hard to, you know, have good, meaningful conversations. You just got to make time for it if you want a healthy relationship, right? Um, if you haven't done that in a while, then you've probably lost intimacy with Jesus. And Jesus is telling the Laodiceans, and perhaps he's telling you too, I stand at the door and knock, right? I want to eat with you. I want to dine with you. I want to share intimacy with you. And what better time than in the new year? Uh, maybe you have this new motivation and say, I really want to get my prayer life in order and devote more time to Jesus. If I have to, I got to wake up before the kids wake up and spend some time in prayer and in the word because it is that important. Um, right? Not just for my witness, but it's ultimately important for our, uh, our life, uh, our souls. Now, uh, I know this was a lot of uh, explanatory stuff and I know uh, I had to stuff a lot of things in here, but uh, we do have to conclude because uh, I don't want to go too long. But there's a promise, right? There's a promise here in both of them, actually, uh, to the one who conquers. In, in, in Ephesus, uh, Jesus promises access to the tree of life. Uh, here, to the Laodiceans, the one who conquers uh, is to sit on Jesus, uh, sit with Jesus on his throne and that, that's an amazing promise. That's an amazing picture that Jesus would invite us to sit with him on his throne. We'll talk a little bit more about the throne of Jesus next week because uh, when we look at Revelation 4 and 5, uh, John has a vision of the throne room. Uh, but to the one who can overcome self-sufficiency, um, I guess what we simply have to know now is there is something that is glorious that awaits us. And uh, if you're a Laodicean, and if you were rich, if you were successful, if you had a lot to be proud of, culturally speaking, uh, achievement speaking, um, you could still be spiritually sick, and you could still be lacking. And what Jesus is saying is, come to me. Uh, that's what repentance is, friends. Come to me, right? Turn away from your sin. Come to me. 
return to me, receive what I have to offer to you. And <clears throat> I don't know, to, to be quite honest, I don't know what uh, being a faithful witness uh, necessarily looks like in uh, a pandemic. Uh, but I do know this, um, if we're not trying, if we're not coming to Jesus, if we're not seeking to be light, um, uh, you know, there is judgment, <laughs> to, put, you know, to put it bluntly. Uh, there is judgment, and not necessarily salvific judgment, but uh, to Ephesus, he says, I will take away your lampstand. And to uh, the Laodiceans, he says, uh, I will spit you out. And so uh, there's no alternative but to be a repentant church. So uh, let me end there and uh, let me, um, actually, let me give, a, give you a few moments. Um, let me give you a few moments to reflect and maybe Peter, if you could play some music in the background. You know, we, we've already prayed through the seven letters uh, and you know, it was like really great times of prayer and we spent a lot of time repenting for you know our church and churches across the country and uh, i think maybe you know we spent um, some time on wednesday too uh tried to organize a prayer meeting in light of everything that happened in the capital uh, it just feels very appropriate to spend some time in prayer and um you know first timothy 2 it, it says that we should Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Um, so one of the roles of the church is to pray. And I know um, federal government gets a lot of attention, but there's a ton of other uh, civic leaders that I pray for too. Um, I think we've all seen uh, really ugly, distorted images that make the church look bad <laughs> when it's married to politics. And uh, it's easy to say, um, you know, disassociate from them. But, you know, they have faith in Christ. Uh, in a sense, we're all in this together. And um, we have to lift up prayers of repentance. Uh, I think the witness of the church is not great right now in the U.S. And as the church goes, I think the country goes. And I know maybe that's a little bit controversial, but um, I think it's true. And what we need now more than ever is uh, not a church that uh, seeks to go uh, do things like the world does it and attain power uh, in the worldly way. I think we need a purer church, a church refined by fire. A church that seeks gold, a church that seeks the garments that Christ offers, a church that has spiritual eyes to see. So maybe we could spend some time in prayer. Uh, we could pray repentance, prayers of repentance for our church, for um, churches across the country. Um, we can even pray lifting up our uh, civic leaders um, because that's part of what it means, what the word tells us to do. Um, so, yeah, if a few of you want to pray, uh, feel free and that's a little intimidating here uh, if not that's okay just pray on your own from your homes but uh, after a while uh, Peter when you feel it's been like sufficient time uh, you can lead us in, in some worship